The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. A few weeks ago, we um, did a two-day retreat, and um, during that retreat, we were reading from uh, Susan Murphy's book, Minding the Earth, Mending the World. And in that, um, she was proposing that um, in order to deal with our, our crisis of um, uh, environmental crisis, we need to change the story. We need to be to see beyond uh, the too narrow frame of our present way of being in the world, uh, our exploitative, extractive worldview, you could say. So tonight, um, just to come at this from a, a, a little bit of another angle, um, basically want to tell a story, and it's about a very ancient worldview but one that we can perhaps, um, perhaps it can help us renew our own way of being in the world. And um, the story um, comes from a book that somebody lent me. It's a chapter in a book called Running Toward Mystery. And this book is subtitled The Adventure of an Unconventional Life. And it's uh, written by... Uh, the Venerable Tenzin Priyadashi and uh, Zara Hushmand. And it's, it's a kind of memoir. Um, the author, Venerable Tenzin Priyadashi, was born into a, a prominent Hindu family. Um, but when he was only six years old, he started to have um, dreams or, or even visions of a mountain, a peak of a mountain, and he saw um, in the vicinity of this mountain um, men with shaved heads wearing red robes. And he recounts that he saw these, these scenes as vividly as if I were watching a scene from life. And when he was only 10 years old, he ran away from his boarding school to search for this place that had appeared to him in his dreams. Um, and it's an extraordinary tale of, of seeming coincidences where he, he um, jumped onto a train at the railway station and went as far as the train would go and then caught the first bus that he found at the end of that line. So seemingly random acts, but eventually he arrived at this mountain and at a Buddhist monastery, the exact one that he dreamed about and that he felt were very familiar with when he, when he did arrive, as if he had been there before. And this, this Buddhist mon monastery was actually a, a Japanese Nichiren temple uh, very close to Vulture Creek, um, which, of course, is where uh, the Buddha taught the Lotus Sutra, and this sutra is very sacred, central to um, the Nichiren school of Buddhism. He, he stayed
stayed there for a little while, but his parents, who were totally frantic, eventually uh, found him there and, and brought him back home. But he continued to have these visions, and he just he felt this very strong pull to the temple and the tradition um, which he found there, which he felt so familiar to, um, with. So that's the that's the sort of the the way the book starts and relating this these adventures he had as had as a kid and he continued to make connections with um, this temple and other Nichiren temples that exist in India. Um, he's now um, the CEO of um, a center for ethics and transformative values at uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, it's called the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Val Transformative Values. And um, part of his work is uh, facilitating uh, different religions and communities in connecting with each other. Um, and the story comes out of um, some of the work that he was doing at this center. He'd been invited, um, because of his work in the center, to go to Colombia and to speak um, to one of the uh, up to the faculty, the teachers at um, the Universidad del Rosario in Bogota. This this um, university um, was quite um, old; it had been center of the of, of Colombia's. Um, cultural life for three and a half centuries, and many of the, the country's leaders um, were ex-students of this university. He says, the university was interested in the experiment, experiential learning pedagogy in ethics and peace building that the center had developed at MIT, and we were, were beginning to explore how it might be adapted to the particular challenges that Colombia faced. He says, one generally knows what to expect at academic meetings of that nature. What I did not expect was the message that the dean conveyed to me. He seemed as surprised by it as I was. A delicate gation of Arhuacos had arrived from the mountains, sent by their leaders, known as Mamos. The Mamos are elders who are trained from childhood in a complex cosmology and intimate understanding of the natural and spiritual worlds that guide their decisions in all aspects of the community's life. The Arhuacos isolation might suggest a primitive tribal culture, but in fact they, along with three neighboring groups that are closely related, are a substantial remnant of a continuous civilization that survived the Spanish conquest. They have also survived every intrusion 
into their territory since then. The continuous encroachment of settlers from the lowlands, the clearing of forests for the marijuana trade and then for cocaine, and the violence that followed in the wake of these crops, including violence to the land, the laying of land mines to protect the crops, the spraying of fields to eradicate the crops, and the shifting factions of guerrillas, military, and paramilitary. With each new incursion, the indigenous people have been forced higher into the more inaccessible and less productive reaches of their mountain range. Secrecy and isolation have for centuries been part of their strategy for, for preserving their culture, but in recent years they have also learned to work proactively with Colombia's legal system and international organizations to advocate for their rights and environmental protections. Apparently, an elder mamo, this is the, 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 the kind of spiritual leaders of their community, you could call them sort of tohangas, um, had a dream that someone they needed to talk to could be found just then in Bogota, someone who had come from the east and wore red cloth. The university was their connection to civilization, so that's where they sent the message. The dean put two and two together. No one else put the description. Would I be willing to meet with them? The Mamos never leave their sacred territory in the mountains, so we would have to go there. The dean was reluctant to impose, he said, because our schedule was tight and the journey to the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, which is where they lived, would be no simple matter. But since the messengers themselves had come all the way to Bogota, we should go. And this was how I find myself, I found myself walking on this path into an extraordinarily beautiful mountain landscape, accompanied, uh, and he lists a um, uh, number of people who were on the trip with him, plus the Arhuaco messengers. Uh, they were mostly the people accompanying him were various faculty members from the university, from um, from anthropology department and other departments, linguists. He goes on to um, describe a pretty um, daunting trip, first with a flight. Um, to a town, and then a long, long uh, drive across um, roads that became less and less smooth and more and more precarious and rocky, um, with passing around deep ravines and cliff faces and crossing um, through uh, rivers, and finally reaching um, a small settlement um, which was as far as the vehicles were able to go. And then from there, they continued on um, on, foot, on foot, and he was struck by the in incredible quiet that they experienced as they went deeper and deeper into the mountains, especially in contrast to his own um, 
home country of India, where he said there, there would be um, constant noise. He, he describes um, the journey out of this out of this um, village. We left behind paddocks enclosed by low stone walls and hiked deeper into the mountains for almost three hours, their paths alternately dipping into forest and then opening to broad slopes of grassy alpine meadows. I hadn't come to Colombia prepared for hiking, and the only shoes I had bought were deemed inadequate defense against mud and snakes. Some rubber boots were therefore found for me, an almost good fit, but after hours of walking my shins were rubbed raw. We finally arrived at a compound with a few thatched huts. I gathered that the mamos were inside, but before we could enter the area, the Arhuacos who had accompanied us from Bogota said we should sit and prepare ourselves. Um, so they sat on the rocks nearby and just um, were quiet. The only sound was of each man softly tapping a stick on the small gourd that he carried at all times, rotating it around and around. From time to time, the men would dip the, their sticks into the gourd and then into their mouths, mixing lime with the coca leaves that they were chewing. The handling of the gourd, all the tapping and turning, was said to increase their wisdom. The motion and sound and its constant presence reminded me of prayer wheels in the hands of elderly Tibetans. So they went on sitting, sitting just sitting, waiting, or preparing themselves, um, as they were instructed to do. Um, and eventually some um, women came and sat with, with them, and then they were uh, formally welcomed by the older men there, and they tied knotted thread of agave fiber around um, his wrist and um, this was the same fiber that was um, used to make the hats they were, which were um, white and peaked like the mountains that they were sitting surrounded by. They all wore the simplest clothes, all more or less identical of a homespun white cloth. We then walked a slight distance from the compound to what they called a sacred hill where the meeting would take place. The three mamos were sitting in front of a round hut made of straw. They wore the same homespun white clothes, the same snow cap hats as the other Ahuaco men and there was nothing that marked their authority but beyond advanced age and a certain gravitas in their bearing. I asked if there was any specific ritual for entering the space. I noticed that the mamos were barefoot, and I mentioned that in India we would never enter a holy place without taking off our shoes. Everyone agreed that this would be a good idea. I was only too happy to ditch the rubber boots and let my feet feel the earth. We all sat quietly again for a while on the wooden stools and flat stones sent out in front of the hut. Once again the only sound was our own breathing and the gentle tapping of sticks on the gourds 
with the mamos now joining in two. And then, without introduction, Gune Maku Chaparo began talking. He was the eldest of the three, perhaps in his mid-seventies, though it was hard to tell age on skin made leathery by the high-altitude sun. Chaparro spoke in an indigenous language that everyone referred to generically as lingua. Um, I'm guessing that this lingua is the Spanish um, word um, lingua in Italian just means the tongue, the tongue. A little bit, a little bit like terreo means the speech. He led the conversation and the other mamos joined him in intermittently. One of the younger Arhuacos translated into Spanish and my companions then translated from Spanish into English for my sake. At least that was how it started. Chaparro began by answering the question that had followed me all the way from Bogota. Why on earth was I here? He explained that 300 years ago they had received a prophecy of sorts, a legend that looked to the future rather than the past, saying that someone would come from the east wearing red cloth and that they should share wisdom with this person. He had had a dream indicating that, that the person they were waiting for had come to the city and so they had sent their representatives to Bogota to bring me there. Quite, quite extraordinary to, to comprehend the, the deep memory here, the, the attentiveness of this 300-year-old uh, story about a man that they should meet. And not only that, but to, to listen to the dream where, this, where the, the, uh, the arrival of this person is indicated. A very different uh, relationship to, to time than ours, I think. The mamos explained that they had stayed awake all the previous night, out in the open, in preparation for our meeting. They did look a little tired. It was now almost evening again, but not as tired as I would be at half their age. They had spent the hours, they said, asking for guidance from nature and from particular spirits as to how they should welcome me and what they should discuss. In here, what, a, what an example of a particular kind of inner listening. Seeking guidance. I thank them for inviting me. I didn't want to probe the story of the prophecy. It seemed more worthwhile to, fo worthwhile to focus instead on whatever it was they wanted to share with me. Chaparro began to speak about relationships. 
what he What he expressed carried a profound sorrow. He was grieving for his brothers in the outside world who had lost something terribly precious. That loss was as hard as a death, and so he was mourning because what they had lost was the very nature of how to be human, an understanding of how to be in relationship. He spoke of the Arhuacos relationship with this land, about their responsibility as guardians of the health and harmony of these mountains and how the mountains were a mother that had so unselfishly provided for their needs. That relationship he described as a natural, as an original law and all of their understanding of nature evolved from relationship. It was not only this region they knew so well and their own needs that mattered, because the entire universe was created right here in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta. The health of this religion was therefore key to the survival and health of the whole world. So this kind of um, cosmological belief that um, is described here, the, the, the the entire universe first created right here Actually, in terms of, of um, space, a spatial understanding, actually there isn't a spot anywhere in the universe which we couldn't say about it that it is the spot where the, where the, where the exact spot where the, the universe came forth. This is one of the, the extraordinary things about our universe that it all used to be contained in a, in, in a single point and um, expanded from there and it's still expanding and every single point in that expand, expansion is, is um, the very centre of that expansion. It also expresses a kind of, um, I could say, a psychological truth that um, is found in other traditions as well. For instance, um, um, Carl Jung, when he went to America, he learned of the beliefs of the Hopi uh, nation in um, um, southwest west of the, uh, the United States, who. Um, believed that the prayers that they said each dawn were what brought the sun up. What if we were to deeply understand that we are each of us absolutely pivotal in the survival and health of the whole world? How would that that tra- change our relationship to the people and animals and elements around us? The Wa- Arhuacos perceive the world 
as a single living body, the rivers and streams, its veins and arteries. The health of this body consists in a precarious and dynamic balance, a literal homeostasis of the organism, that the mamos are responsible for monitoring and for mending when needed. Even the most mundane activity, life by its very nature, the taking of a breath, the eating of a meal, a birth or a death, shifts the balance in subtle ways. A dispute in the village, an illness, an accident, a family torn by jealousy, these ailments in the organism are strains in relationship that the mamos tend to with care. Building a dam is like blocking an artery. Traditionally, when the health of the system is threatened, they repair the natural order through spiritual work, through guidance in the community, and making ritual payments. It doesn't elaborate on what, what those payments are. The destruction they were witnessing today, the selfishness of their brothers in the cities, the hatred and killing they inflicted on one another, and the extraction of resources from their mother's body all shifted the balance catastrophically beyond the capacity of the mamos powers to correct. The messages from nature that they intercepted foretold much worse to come. The threat of the oceans flooding the land and the sun burning the, barren, the earth barren. Again, um, this, these uh, kinds of, of messages are found in, in um, the teachings of, of a number of in, in indigenous uh, uh, peoples. Uh, recently I've come across a couple of um, uh, writers who um, go into the uh, extraordinary knowledge that um, the Aboriginals in Australia have of their land. Um, there's, a, there's a book called um, Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe um, which has uh, it's an account of um, land and agricultural practices of the Aborigines um, prior to um, the coming of uh, Europeans and practices and, and teachings that have been largely ignored by um, Europeans because they're highly motivated to want to think of Australia as being an empty land when they came. Um, not one that was was uh, was in a sense owned by the Aboriginals. It's a fascinating book, and I strongly recommend it. But just wanted to read a little bit. Which this is a passage which appears right at the beginning of the book. The book is called Dark Emu, and this is the this sort of this little short passage introduces the the text. Bayame, this creator spirit Emu left the earth after its creation to reside as a dark shape in the Milky Way. The emu is inextricably linked with the wide grasslands of Australia, the landscape managed by Aboriginals. 
the fate of the emu, people, and grain are locked in step because for Aboriginal people, the economy and the spirit are inseparable. Europeans stare at the stars, but Aboriginal people also see the spaces in between where the spirit emu resides. I was struck by um, what a Zen spirit this this has. Uh, the the idea of seeing not only the stars but also also the space around those stars, the the um, the shape of the darkness itself. Another. Uh, uh, teacher of, of um, indigenous knowledge uh, was recently on um, RNZ I think it was in, in September there was an interview with him, his name is um, it looks like I didn't, didn't write it down but the name of his, his book which I haven't read but he was talking about is called Fire Country um, how Indigenous fire management could help save Australia. And the writer um, is, has a, a, a sort of project on to teach about Aboriginal fire management to as many people as possible. And he, what he described was a, a, um, a very close attendance to soils, trees, weeds, and, and cleared land and to be a very fine-grained observation of these different aspects of, of the landscape um, from a holistic um, perspective. And around the world, this is what you find um, uh, in indigenous knowledge. And he talked, this author talked about how when he travels and he talks to other indigenous peoples, even though they have knowledge of a different landscape, he finds that the, the, the knowledge itself is similar in structure and approach and connection to the land. And, he, and listening to the way he talked, what also struck me was how much the relationship between him and his, his own teachers um, was akin to that of between a, a Zen teacher and a student that the, the, the teaching was practical, learned on the land, not in the classroom, um, taught teaching by, by doing more than by, um, by telling. At some point in the conversation, I became aware that we had left behind our support system of trilingual translation. Chaparro was speaking in the indigenous lengua and I was speaking English. The understanding was immediate and instantaneous and we were responding to each other without waiting for the translators who trailed behind us. 
what I heard in the mamos voice and read in the shadows that crossed his face was a deeply empathic concern for the suffering that this failure of relationship had called, caused. These mountings, they are in pain, he said. He spoke gently but with emotion as tender and raw as if his own child or sister or mother was dying. The relationship he was pointing to was real, not metaphor. And who, who's to say that this isn't a, a, um, a true description of things? These mountains, they are in pain. very brief glimpse I had into the Mamos world shook me profoundly. It had not occurred to me that there are ways of relating to nature that are far beyond the realm of my own experience. I've had the benefit of an excellent education in the natural sciences, long periods of contemplative solitude in nature, and the pleasure of countless hours spent framing nature's glorious displays through a camera's eye. None of this prepared me for what the mamos was trying to, were trying to communicate. I have deep-rooted memories of my own family's ties to the land of Vaisali, the quiet bond that elders shared with the earthen goddess Budevi, and the practical rhythms of farming life. But compared to the pulsing umbilical cord that links the mamos to the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, our ties to the land are attenuated. We have divided our attention for generations. And yet I remember as a child watching an elderly man planting saplings in our village. These would be mango trees one day, he said, and I was eager to know how long that would take. It would take three or four years, he said, before the first fruit appeared. But the fruit of the first year was never very good. So maybe in the five years the mangoes would be ready to enjoy. That seemed a very long time indeed. I was maybe seven or eight years old myself, so it was most of a lifetime. Baba, how old are you? I asked. His smile bared a single tooth hanging from his gun. I am 92 years old, he said proudly. Baba, will you still be here to enjoy the mango mangoes? I won't but you will be. He was more than content, even proud, to invest his efforts in a future that wasn't his own. He had the same leathered skin and wore the same kind of white homespun cloth, work-stained and sun-bleached, that the Ahuacos wore, and his face had appeared to my mind's eye for a moment as I listened to Chaparro, the unselfishly long view that both these men embodied should not seem mysterious to us. Every day we reap the benefits of previous generations' foresight, but we seem to have lost that faculty ourselves. And while this is true, it's also fair to say that we can find examples of people in our world and in our society who have got this long view. It's not entirely lost.
even among even among some of our politicians, politicians who who courageously um, put forward policies that may not be the most popular, but are ones that benefit others. This is what we certainly we need as we're going forward now. And say that the, the elections are the easy part. It's the it's after the election that is, is the real challenge. And our politicians face such enormous challenges. The Mamos view of relationships made a profound impression on me. Their own self-interest and their very urgent concerns for their own people seemed a secondary to a larger, holistic concern for the whole world. It was a concern that was practical, grounded in the most fundamental of physical needs and a livelihood of bare sustenance. And yet it was also a transcendent and unselfish expression of love, shining in contrast with the way that our own relationships, and not just our relationship with nature, lean toward the transactional. Our culture has taught us to weave meaning and magic around relationships that mask the reductive calculations we make consciously or unconsciously. We can become entranced by rituals of reciprocity and the satisfying dance of give and take. We spin stories about how these relationships are loving and deeply caring, but the roles we play are rarely as selfless as the stories we would have us believe. At the end of the day, love that is truly offered freely shakes off the bonds of self-interest and self-cherishing. However it begins, it moves beyond the constraints of a transactional calculating mindset. It's, it's, it's a good idea sometimes just to really examine ourselves in this regard. Um, um, how much do we allow our own self-interest to, to enter, enter into our interactions? Proshi um, Kaplow used to say um, the reasons people give for their, their actions are often not the real reasons. He goes on. Bodhicitta, that impulse that draws us towards enlightenment, offers a clear-sighted view that cuts through the stories and sees into the deeper nature of reality. It sees who we are as sentient beings and understands that we are capable of purely loving, caring relationships where nothing is expected in return. Nothing is even hoped for except for others' well-being. There are those who claim that such unselfishness is impossible, that even if we expect nothing in this lifetime, we have simply offloaded our expectations of reward to an afterlife. They insist that we are still checking the balance of our account, even if the merit is supposedly spiritual. This, this tendency was, is recognized in Buddhism as being a danger, and the sort of antidote that is applied to this tendency is um, the, the um, return of merit, uh, different, different formulations of the return of merit that we do um, for instance, at the end of our chanting services, as a way of, of um, loosening us up from that grasping at some kind of 
spiritual merit. So we give the merit back to the Buddhists, the Bodhisattvas, or to others who are more in need of it than we are. He goes on to talk about these doubters. Um, They have never imagined themselves in the seat of an archetypal bodhisattva. Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of compassion, is not worried about his next lifetime or a merit-driven higher rebirth. He's made the choice to stay behind, available in this life until we are all enlightened, and not one sentient being is left behind. It struck me um, this, this way of describing the Bodhisattva. He or she has made the choice to stay behind. There's a similar image actually that you find in Christianity um, of the shepherd. The shepherd always moves the sheep from, from behind. Always the last one to, to pass through. how different this this notion from um, that, that impulse we have in us to win. The winner of the race is the one who leaves everybody else behind. made the choice to stay behind available in this life until we are all enlightened and not one sentient being is left behind that is not a finite task we won't become bodhisattvas unless we learn to identify and abandon motives rooted in transactional calculation to practice cherishing others more dearly than ourselves and to extend the same open hearted compassion and unselfish love to all human beings equally, including those far outside our natural circles of affinity. This is, this, our, our ability to do this is, is, is really one of the ways of, of um, uh, getting an indication of, of um, the work we're doing on ourselves. Are we, are we able to widen those circles of affinity? Are we, are we able to feel some love and compassion even for the most uh, despicable characters? Why not extend the boundaries of unselfish, unselfish relationship beyond other humans? beyond even the handful of animals who appeal to our anthropomorphic imaginations. Suppose we could expand our circle of care to encompass all forms of life and the whole of the environment. I would care for a tree not because it has some utilitarian function, giving me shade, food, timber, not even because it's beautiful and I desire the pleasure of gazing on this tree. There is a different kind of pleasure call it an aesthetics of relationship that appreciates the larger whole in which the tree and I are equally participants. We understand how objectifying another person dehumanizes them, makes them less than they are. Can we learn in the same spirit not to objectify a tree? 
if you read the, pa the Pali texts, uh, stories of the, of, of the Buddha and the Buddhist teaching, um, at that time in India, every single tree um, was thought to contain a spirit. And it's interesting that this, the same is found in, in uh, modern Shinto in Japan. This aesthetic response to a more holistic view of our relationship with nature begins with the premise that we are all interconnected. We recognize that we need one another for our survival. Yes, we have needs and desires, but we don't translate our needs and desires into utilitarian models that become a filter for perception and assigning value. Instead, we recognize that because we are interconnected, our sense of well-being, our health and wholeness, the very integrity of our existence is tied to the health and wholeness of other beings. That sense of profound interconnection might sound like a naive and romantic projection, but the fact is that other models haven't worked well for us. The way we have framed the world thus far tends to devolve to exploitation and oppression. There's, there's a little bit more here. We're nearly, we're nearly through, but our time is up. So um, just to finish... Um, with the with the quotation that he starts the chapter off with, and this is from from a an Indian sage, modern sage Nizar Gadatta, who was an um, Advaita uh, guru, somewhat um, in a similar vein to, to uh, Ramana Maharshi, which people may have who may have read his his teachings. This is what Nizargadatta says. And it's, it's um, something that, I th that, that um, we can relate very closely to our, our Zen practice. I find that somehow, by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You may give it any name you like. Love says, I am everything. Wisdom says, I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Since at any point of time and space, I can be both the subject and the object of experience. I express it by saying that I am both and neither and beyond both. We'll stop here and recite for now. I vow to liberate and love.
Helpless, blind, passions, I bow to uproot. Dharma gaze beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gaze beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.